Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of Energy Makes America Great and the companion educational organization, the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy. Here on America's Voice for Energy, each week I have the opportunity to interview experts on the topic of my column. Every week I write a news-based column uh, that deals with energy issues. And what I write on totally depends on what's going on in the news. This week, I was alerted to a funny little article. It's not really funny, but it's a little article from a very unknown newspaper called the Phillipsburg Mail based in Montana. And one of my many sources alerted me to this article. And the name of the article is, as I flip the page, is Oil Prices Impact Recycling. And uh, I thought, well, that's an interesting one I hadn't thought of. And as I went through, I realized how uh, the price of oil, the low prices of oil currently, are hurting the recycling industry, yet many companies are still buying recycled plastic, even though it's more expensive than virgin plastic. And the reason is because they wanted to meet their sustainability goals, because they wanted to have the status of having the recycled symbol on their product even though it made the cost of plastics for the consumer ultimately higher. And I thought, wow, you know, there are other things where green has become a status symbol. And as we're going to talk about on today's show, there are several other things specifically where green really has become a status symbol. Hence my column, green, the status symbol the affluent can afford that costs the poor. Now, remember, you can find my column throughout the Internet. You can find it on Breitbart.com, Townhall.com, RedState.com, and American Spectator at Spectator.org, and many, many other locations. But one of the things that surprised me as I began my research on this topic was on the Sun Run website, a website that is a, it's a solar panel leasing company, they actually use this status symbol as a sales feature. On the Sunrun website, and I have a link to it in my column, they tell the story of a customer, Pat, and she says that she likes having the solar panels on, their, on her roof because they are kind of a green status symbol. Well, you know, the reality is that when some people put solar panels on their roof, it actually hurts others, usually the less fortunate. And in fact, one of the comments from my column this week, you know, when it's posted on different websites, people write in and, and comment. Someone said that he lived in a certain neighborhood, and he said it's a fairly affluent neighborhood, and many of his neighbors, not him, but many of his neighbors have solar panels. Yet, if you go into another neighborhood, which was the one he mentioned was a, a less affluent neighborhood, there were no solar panels at all, which made the point. Another person commented that he used to install solar panels and that they were all liberal doctors and lawyers and the like, and that they all said that they were putting solar panels on their roof to save the planet and because the tax benefits made it worth 
the wild. Well, we're going to talk this morning with uh, a, someone who can give us some real insight on how this whole thing called net metering works. It's a difficult concept for most people to understand, but it's what makes the, the move to solar panels pencil out. We're going to talk with Monica Martinez, and Monica is formerly a Michigan Public Service Commissioner. Now, Public Service Commissioners are those who set the uh, electricity policy, and Monica, I hope you'll explain that Public Service Commissioner role a little more closely. I have a good friend who's in the public, who is a Public Service Commissioner in New Mexico, but Monica Martinez is also the President and Secretary for Hispanics in Energy and the founder and CEO of Rubin Strategy Group, LLC, which is recognized as one of the nation's and region's leading regulatory and le legislative strategists. So, Monica, with that impressive background, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Thank you so much, Marita, for having me here um, with you because I think this is, you know, energy, understanding what's happening in energy and understanding the nuances is so important just so that we can be having a good dialogue on policy. And well, I well, and especially in this election, especially in this election year. Absolutely, absolutely. So we have to be able to make sure we understand what we're talking about and be able to have a good discourse. So tell us first, um, briefly, what's the role of the public service commissioner as far as electricity generation relates? Sure. I mean, while it varies a little bit state by state, generally our role as public utility commissioners or public service commissioners is to oversee the electric system within our state. And as part of that, we also primarily deal with pricing. And for that, there are rates, and many individuals receive their monthly electric bill. And how those rates are structured and how they get applied um, really is, you know, over the jurisdiction, over the you know, authority of that public service commission. So if a utility wants to change how much they charge you, they usually go to the public service commission, make, a, you know, a formal proceeding or filing, and the public utility commission looks at it, their staff examines it, people weigh in whether or not they think it's okay or whether they think something's out of line, and then the final decision is made, and that's how we establish what you are charged at the end of the day. Yeah, and, and you all exist in part, I believe, because utilities are somewhat of a, of a monopoly. And people, I hear from people all the time, they feel that because the utility is basically a monopoly, that they're totally getting ripped off by the utility. But you all exist to make sure that doesn't happen. Is that correct? That is correct. And it's difficult. It's difficult because, you know, energy is essential. Electricity is essential. We plug in with so many gadgets. We rely on it. And we are so dependent on when we flip the switch that electricity is there. But it can be a fairly significant cost for many households. And, you know, with many Americans still struggling to, you know, get by, um, you know, find the appropriate job opportunity, it can be tough, and then, you know, the lower you are on that income strata, the higher that percentage of, your, you know, your income is going towards your energy bill, and so it makes a difference. It can be tough for many people. 
Yeah, you know, and I we've t- I've taken up too much time, probably because we're that we're down to about five minutes. So I want to give you plenty of time to explain why net metering, uh, which is what makes solar work, if you can maybe address why net metering makes solar work for most people, makes it pencil out is what I mean by work, um, and, and then how it's, how it's raising costs for everybody. Yeah, so net metering basically allows customers to go ahead and put a solar panel on their house, and in many cases they're receiving a larger amount of reimbursement than they should. And and that means they get paid a rate for the solar that they send back on the grid. And in many cases, the way that it all works out is that, you know, they're being um, freed from having to pay from not only the distribution grid, but also the real cost of the energy that they're consuming. Because if you're putting a solar panel on a house, you're still going to use and need electricity from the grid. It doesn't free you of it. And that's the number one myth, is people think that once they put a solar panel on the house, they're just powering and generating on their own. The reality is, minute by minute, you may need some um, voltage or some other reliability needs from the grid, and you may need, you know, extra power. If you're going to go ahead and turn on your air conditioner, it might need that extra boost from the grid to go ahead and get it. And generally, it might not be needing all of the electric needs that you have at any one specific time or during when you might need it because it really doesn't act like a battery. So, you know, you're always constantly still needing the grid and the power to it. And so part of that is is just making sure that people are paying or contributing their fair share to the cost of the grid. We all agree that the grid is important and it needs to be resilient. We rely on it. So everyone needs to contribute their amount to it. Just because I have a solar panel on my house or, you know, I don't, but if I did, I shouldn't, you know, escape the fees of the grid um, just because of that, especially if I were to be able to use it to buy and sell. Um, so that's, you know, one of those things. You need to contribute to those costs because we all are reliant on that reliability of the electricity system. So someone who has solar panels on the roof but is still connected to the utility company, um, how are they hurting, as I put it in my column, the poor? Well, what ends up happening is that they end up over, you know, not paying what they should. And if they should be paying more, those costs are then distributed amongst everyone else. And so, so they're they're buying they're buying more expensive electricity because they're buying it from the rooftop solar provider, and that messes up their bottom line. They then come to you, the public regulatory commission, lay out their books. I'm oversimplifying this, I think, but they lay out their books and say, look, we can't continue to operate like this, so we need a rate increase. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, that that is kind of how it works. I mean, one of the things that we want to do as public utility commissioners is, you know, assign rates that are just and reasonable. And when all of that metering programs were put into place years ago, they really needed an incentive. Today, the price of solar has dropped dramatically three and fourfold, and the business models of the companies that are, you know, installing them have changed dramatically. Yeah, that's a big deal, I think. 
you know, those things are happening. And so when you say that, you know, the cost of solar has, has gone down two to three times, you know, just in the last seven years, then one would say that the rate that you get paid for putting that solar on should drop two to three times as well. And so, mm -hmm. you know, part of that is everyone needs to look at it and revisit it and figure what is the appropriate amount that individuals should be paid. And just to your point, we're all dealing with cost, you know, and we want to make sure that we pay as little as we need to. And so if someone tells you you should be paying something for that's more expensive when you can get the same thing somewhere else, a different solar energy, like, you know, with larger size, large-scale solar for a less expensive price, you know, then we should do something that's more economical because it impacts everyone at the end of the day, and especially those who can least afford it. Yeah. We've got 30 seconds left, Monica. Uh, you made a comment that these solar panel or policies were put in place years ago um, very quickly. Are, would you say that uh, a lot of states are now revisiting these policies? And they are. And they're meeting with some resistance because it's hard. If you're currently getting a good coupon or discount, there are people who are on that who don't want to lose it. And that's fair enough. But I think we constantly must revisit it and just making sure we're getting it right. We're getting smarter technology so we know usage more immediately and when people are using it by the minute, by the second. And we just need to make sure our policies align with the information and with the reality of what the costs are today. Well, Monica Martinez, I so appreciate your taking your time to join us today and explaining this uh, to us. And uh, appreciate your time, and I'm especially happy to have found another woman that I can talk to about net metering because there's not too many ladies that want to talk about electricity policy. Thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy, and we'll be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. You're listening to America's Webradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. As you know, this week we're talking about energy, no surprise there, but we're specifically talking about my column this week entitled Green, the Status Symbol the Affluent Can Afford That Costs the poor. And I'm excited to have back with me Travis Fisher, who is an economist with the Institute for Energy Research. And he has seven years of experience as an economist with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, also known as FERC. And so he's got a deep background in um, energy issues, not to mention the, the fact that he has a BS and an ME in economics from North Carolina State University. So, Travis, I'm glad to have you back with us on America's Voice for Energy. It's great to be on. Thank you. So this week in my column, I threw in just a little tiny bit on a a study or, or some work that Institute for Energy Research did on the escalating cost of electricity. And I, I put a link in to, to this uh, report from February 25, 2016 on the IER website. And I just put in a, a, just a little bit of a line with the link in hopes that my readers would want to get more information on this. And you know, one of the things that I so enjoy about this radio program, America's Voice for Energy, is that it does allow me to experience expand the topic of my column beyond the limited word count world, though we're still limited by time here, but I get to develop the topics a little bit further. And so while in my column, I just put in kind of one line that basically says that the price of electricity has gone up 34% basically under the time that President Obama has been president. And that at this same time, we're seeing record low, at least in recent history, prices of natural gas and coal, which are the primary fuel for electricity. So we're seeing lower fuel costs, but yet higher prices. I'm hoping that you can uh, explain that for our listeners. Sure. Well, it seems backwards, right? You have the, the fuel inputs, coal and natural gas, the two biggest fuel inputs. The cost of those are, so coal is pretty flat and gas has gone way down. So since 2005, gas has gone down. The price of natural gas delivered to power plants has gone down about 60%. And it reached an all-time high in 2005 of about $8 per million BTU. And now it's hovering around the low threes. So you're wondering why, if, if this input has gone down in price so much, why is the delivered cost of electricity to to consumers, like the, the cost that you pay on your power bill, why is that still going up? And part of the reason is generation is only one component of it. So as you, as you actually decrease the cost of these generation sources, you have, on the other hand, increased costs in other areas. And there's also some mass costs when it comes to the other sources on the grid. So, yeah, you have gas. The cost of natural gas is low. Cold's flat. Um, but you also have an increase in the other sources like wind and solar, and those are very expensive sources to put on the grid. Now, let's stop there for a minute because that's the key thing that I want to point out because if you listen to wind and solar advocates, they're always talking about how the cost has come down, how they've got parity, cost parity with the other sources. 
Uh, but it doesn't sound like that's actually the case from what you're saying. No, if, if you look at the fundamentals, if, if you just look at the levelized cost of electricity from the different sources, especially when you're comparing new sources to existing ones. So what, what's happening now is a lot of existing coal plants are closing and a lot of new wind and new solar is coming on the grid. So those two things, that's a very expensive shift. That's you're replacing our lowest cost sources with our highest cost sources. So the actual, though, the, the cost difference, uh, it's going to come out somewhere. And even though you might not see it in wholesale prices, there's another layer to this where some of the cost of those new sources is masked by things like tax incentives. So wind gets a production tax credit on every unit of energy that, that it produces. So, And that is, in some cases, as big, if not bigger, than the wholesale price. So you, you actually get – it's almost like wind is cheating to be able to get on the grid. And so is solar. It has an estimate tax credit and a, a bunch of incentives for households that, that want to put solar panels in their house. And so those incentives, as you say, mask the true cost. Exactly. So when, when they talk about parity, first of all, what they're talking about is just the energy itself um, because you really can't compare. We, we, we talked about this when I was on before. That it's not an apples-to-apples -apples comparison to say, what's the cost of electricity from this plant that we know can run whenever we want it to versus the cost of this plant that we just have to take as it's available. So that's the case with wind and solar for sure. You can't turn those things on and off. You just have to take it as the wind's available and the sun's available. Plus, um, as we talked about in the previous segment with former Public Regulatory Commissioner Monica Martinez, we talked about net metering, and net metering um, – requires utilities basically to pay full retail for the cost of the electricity generated from solar panels, and they're buying it perhaps, from my understanding, at a time they don't really need it. How does that impact the pricing? Exactly. That's, that's one of the same things that I was talking about with what's happening at the utility level that you – this isn't necessarily a wholesale transaction, so you wouldn't see this in wholesale prices. But the utility is forced to buy that power. At oh, okay, wait, cost. wait, wait, wait. So when you look at the wholesale price of electricity, the, wind, the uh, solar power from rooftop solar is not calculated in there because it's not wholesale? Right, that's a retail transaction. So that what the utility would like to do is buy that power wholesale from someone else because it would be cheaper. But what or, or they'd be happy to buy it from those customers at wholesale. Would I, would I be correct in that? Exactly, but when regulators, when, when they've made that shift to, to shift net metering from a retail price to a wholesale price, the solar people freak out because the solar market goes away. They, it, it can't compete. That's yeah, it only works. It only works with that, and when I say works, I mean pencils out. Financially, economically, it only works with that kind of policy, that very generous, really a subsidy. Exactly, and in that same category, you have other costs on utilities where they, if there's a state-level mandate for renewable energy, that, that's a cost that they have to eat and then pass along to the consumer. So what, what happens there is if you have a state that says, we want to be 20% renewable by 2020, what the utility has to do is either buy renewable energy certificates or just outright buy the output of a, a wind facility. Or they have to build a whole new facility and have lots of CapEx costs. Cost, am I correct? Exactly, and all that's new cost to them. So on the one hand, yeah, they're, they're actually producing 
energy cheaper than ever from natural gas and as, as cheap as ever from coal, and you actually can't get the benefit from it because you have all these new costs added in. And so for consumers um, across the board, we are seeing uh, in the, this 34% increase that you mentioned in this post on uh, the IER website, the escalating cost of electricity. The average person, whether they have solar panels on their roof, well, actually, only those who don't have solar panels on the roof are feeling this, this increase, correct? Exactly, and it's, it's backwards. You know, you, you would expect as, as the cost of the inputs go down, we could actually be seeing lower electricity prices. We, we don't necessarily have to move in one direction. We don't have to always have more and more expensive electricity. It's just Right, and as we talked about with Monica Martinez in the last segment, that's kind of the role of the public regulatory commissioner is to make sure that the consumer is paying a fair and appropriate cost. So if costs go down as they have with natural gas or stayed steady as they have with coal, so overall they should go down, consumers could be seeing reductions in their bills, but because of mandates and new costs and buying electricity at retail, um, they're actually going up for consumers. Exactly, and what tends to happen is utilities tend to get their way. The, uh, the Public Service Commission doesn't tend to fight against the utility very hard. So if the utility says, for example, well, we could either lower rates because our costs are lower, or what utilities tend to propose instead is something that costs more. So a great example is the energy efficiency programs. Sometimes the utility comes up with on their own, and they say, we're going to teach people how to use less of our product, which is insane on its face. But right. So the utility has this, uh, it usually either has the word green or clean or something. So you, the, the utility itself comes up with this program and says, well, we're going to do energy efficiency, but what we want to do is, you know, it's going to cost millions of dollars, but what we'd like to do is just roll that into the rate. So what the utility ends up doing is making more money selling less stuff, which is crazy. But in reality, by saying we're going to do this energy efficiency plan or whatever it might be, they're doing this uh, to appease the, the current trend, the current mindset that's out there um, because – you know, as I, as getting back to the title of my column, that green has become kind of a status symbol. And so people think, oh, well, I want to have green. And, and um, it's, it's definitely something, for example, solar panels, which are an obvious uh, green status symbol. You see those in many, many upscale neighborhoods, but non-existent in lower-income neighborhoods. Exactly, and there's actually, I, I see no problem in someone choosing to do that. It's just that the costs are always shifted off to somebody else. Exactly, so. and that's, that's where that cost, that 34% uh, increase in utility bills ends up hurting those who can least afford it. And we've got about a minute and a half left, Travis. Yeah, so the, 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 the main takeaway here is that we could actually be enjoying lower electricity costs in the same way that new natural gas production with the same with, you know, hydraulic fracturing and the new oil that, that we have, what we've actually seen lower gasoline prices, and everybody actually sees the price of that, and we're celebrating the, the cost of that coming down. We actually could, because of the same hydraulic fracturing processes, and we have cheap natural gas now, 
through that same process, we ought to be seeing some downtick in electricity prices. But there's so much else going on, and it's you know it's complicated with what's going on between utilities and public service commissions. And what what they've done essentially is shielded the consumer from all these benefits that we could be getting. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see. Um, how how these policies play out, and, and I think it's important we talk about this, especially in uh, this election year, because we definitely have a, a difference in presidential candidates with Hillary Clinton proudly proclaiming earlier this week that she's going to put coal miners and coal companies out of business. I tweeted, what a way to run for president, Clinton, you know, promising that you're going to kill jobs. It's uh, We've got a real stark contrast in energy policies uh, heading into this election. Yeah, and one one thing to note there, too, is the uh, the current president ran on the platform that he was going to make electricity prices skyrocket. So in that sense, he, he came through, he followed through on that promise. And yeah. if, if we elect the next person who says the same thing, you know, it's, it's not a secret. These, these people are saying this out loud. They're telling us that our costs are going to increase, and we vote for them anyways. It's absurd. Yeah, and so in some ways we get what we asked for, but hopefully not you and me. We didn't ask for it. But I hope that our conversation today, Travis, will help our listeners understand the importance of the role in energy and in economics and in the upcoming election. We've been talking with Travis Fisher, an economist with the Institute for Energy Research, talking specifically about their report on the escalating cost of electricity. Travis, thanks for joining us again today. Thank you. And we'll be right back with another segment of America's Voice for Energy. You're listening to America's Web Radio, your voice in the matter. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Glad to have you with us today. And as you know from our first two segments, we've been talking about my column this week called Green, the status symbol the affluent can afford that costs the poor. Now, one of the things I discovered in my research for this column that surprised me was how the low price of oil is impacting recycling. And in our next segment, not this one now, but our final segment of today's show, we're going to talk with Chris Doherty, Vice President of the National Waste and Recycling Association, and we'll get kind of the professional side of the story. But when I sent my column out, as I do every week, I got an email back from one of one of uh, my readers, whose name is Paul Nielsen, who is a petroleum landman. He negotiates. He's in the oil and gas industry in that sense. 
and he sent me an email back with with a story about the recycling uh, in his own community uh, outside of Houston. And so I asked Paul, would you like to come on the show and talk to me about this from, you know, kind of a personal experiential perspective. So, Paul, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to join me to talk about this topic. Thank you, Marita. Good to be here. I'm in Houston, Texas. So tell me, Houston, Texas, your your waste is handled by waste management. Is that correct? Well, that's right. And I'm in a suburb that's outside the city limits, so waste management handles the large city of Houston, but also handles my municipal utility district waste as well. And and that that, that community, both communities, Houston and where you live, um, just like many communities around the country, uh, have offered uh, recycling services uh, as a part of the the pickup. Well, that's right, and we voluntarily do it. We're all pro, you know, environment and everything. And so, without uh, we separate our own and put it out in the green containers, and we try to be part of the team. But we're just worried about the economics. Yeah, and the economics are interesting because as I did, I did quite a bit of research on this, you know, as I do for every column that I write, and you know that because you regularly read my columns and often send me comments back on them, uh, which I always appreciate hearing from you. And um, as I did a lot of research, I realized that uh, I learned that it's actually companies that were previously making money or communities that were making money, because sometimes it's a a public-private partnership, sometimes it's done by the community, sometimes it's done by a private company, Uh, companies or communities who were previously making millions of dollars off of recycling are now losing money as a result of recycling, and some of them are still offering recycling services because it's still cheaper than what it would cost to take these same materials to a landfill because they're charged for every load that goes into a landfill. Some of them are still doing it, and some of them, as uh, the, the newspaper article in the Phillipsburg Mail that got me started on this whole topic, really, uh, they've totally discontinued recycling in that part of uh, Montana, or at least for plastics. They don't pick it up. You can you can drive it to the recycling place, but they said the reality is it cost them too much to go pick the stuff up. They can't, they can't you know, like you said, it's the economics. Uh, but you've seen some changes in the policies in your community as well. Well, that's that's right. In the city of Houston, they've uh, mayor's just announced the guys. We did the best we could. Waste management is agreeable to continue to take our plastic and paper waste, but no longer any glass whatsoever. So glass is out, and um, maybe at a future time revisit that. In my local community, we have waste management, but the contract is not up, so they're still carrying all glass and other recyclables. Now, do you think plastic is likely uh, to be something that that goes by the wayside plastic recycling as well? Well, certainly. You know, with the low energy costs, uh, the consumers typically view uh, oil as, as fuel rather than also as a feedstock. So it makes all this plastic very cheap, gives profit. Uh, at the downstream end of the business, but, uh, of course, the upstream, uh, midstream sectors of the energy industry are being hammered right now severely. Now, I'm sure most of our listeners probably know those terms, but just for those who don't, would you just kind of define for me the downstream, midstream, and upstream? 
sectors of the industry. Processing and refining, and then uh, making products uh, out of petroleum. Petroleum includes gas, by the way, and uh, natural gas. And then midstream is your pipeline connections around the country, and those are connected with um, a number of different processing elements to uh, be able to transport. Upstream is your exploration and production. We're actually actually going out and drilling, you know, finding prospects um, and and drilling those prospects. And that's the part of the industry, as you said, that's that's especially struggling right now. Then is the upstream side. Yes, Anadarko just announced 17% of its entire workforce was going to be laid off at once, and they're a big employer here in North Houston, the Woodlands, and. Um, um, that's uh, that's more than a thousand people. So, uh, and that follows similar um, trends within other companies here. And some companies are going into hibernation. I mean, it's just a horrible situation on the upstream end. Yeah, it, it is a horrible situation. I know uh, donations to my organization are uh, pretty much non-existent at the moment. In fact, yeah. at the moment we're recording, the checking account is overdrawn. Fortunately, we have a few checks to put in that will put it back in, in the black, but it's it's a tough situation. Let's jump back then to the, the downstream side, which would include the production of plastics, because I think a lot of people don't realize the average person out there probably, um, the, the average person out there doesn't realize why when oil prices are low, why would that impact recycling? Can you kind of enlighten us on that? Well, I'm not an expert on that end, but it's feedstock, meaning they make uh, products that most things are plastic, from your computers to your fountain pens, uh, everything that's on your desk to, um, you know, refrigerators. Every, everything has, has that, your comb and, you know, hairbrush. And uh, the contents of a lot of the products themselves actually have petroleum products. So uh, this is all available online very easily to, to, to go in and, and just look at the array of products, and I've seen some films on it, too. It's, it's yes. uh, throughout everybody's daily life. Yeah, I have a small section on that, an incomplete list, just to give people an idea. In my book, uh, Energy Freedom, which is really written for the average person who doesn't understand why they should care about energy issues. And as you said, it's really... Uh, a, a part of everything that we do has petroleum. So those people who are trying to say, oh, we need to have no fossil fuels, um, they'd have a totally different world. No, it's, it's so many of those tangible objects and not just your fuel, and that's what they simply do not understand. Yeah, and so that's why I appreciate you uh, talking about that with us uh, because it is it is a relevant fact, and as I said, the recycling side, um, you know, the, the recycling industry, as I, as I talk about more specifically with our next guest, uh, is seeing uh, some real changes because of this low price of oil. And I saw some in my research, and I don't have the figure in front of me, but I saw something like um, that recycled plastics was going for something like $16 a pound, and now it's going for pennies a pound or something. And I, I wish I had that data in front of me. But it's making a big difference in communities who were making millions on uh, the recycling contracts 
are now losing millions, and they're having to make those decisions. Do we continue with this recycling program, uh, or do we not continue with these recycling programs? Because, as you said, you know, you want to do what's right. You don't want to be throwing this stuff into the landfills or out into the oceans, but the economics do play a role. Certainly. It's all economics. That's the entire thing. Yeah, and, you know, you can only do, you know, what you feel is, you know, the right thing. I mean, I found in my research that many companies were willing to pay a premium for recycled plastic, even though they could get virgin plastic, as they call it, plastic made directly from oil, first generation, that many companies were actually willing to pay a higher price because, as I point out in my column, which is kind of the gist of what I wrote this week, that it's really become such a status symbol to be green that companies want to be able to have that recycled logo on their product. Or as I read in Germany when I, in my research that Germany, they have what they call a blue angel, and companies want to have that because it's become you know, kind of that status symbol. And so they're willing to pay a higher price. But, of course, as we both understand, that when you pay a higher price for something, where does that higher price go? It goes to the consumers. Yes, it's shared widely. It's just uh, it's like the old shell game. You're trying to move it from one shell to the other without anybody noticing, you know, where and, and that's that's the whole game. Uh, there is a price. There is no free lunch. And, you know, you have to sort that out and, and who's being crushed by that and what we can do about it. Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the what we're talking about and the amount of increase in a plastic bottle for a bottled water or a soda or whatever, you know, is a, a minuscule increase probably. I mean, I don't really know what the increase is, but it's probably a minuscule increase. But th- that still, those, those kind of things add up. When you look at the increase in electricity costs, as we talked about in the previous segments with, our, with my other guests, you look at the increase in, in uh, electricity costs, you look at the increase in taxes to cover subsidies and things like that for the electric cars and for solar panels and wind turbines and all of that. Uh, and it all begins to add up. And while, as I say in my column, the affluent cannot easily afford this, um, the less fortunate cannot, and it takes a toll. Yeah, my phrase is crushing the poor, and I think it does that. In Texas, we're not elated at all about low gasoline prices because those are people out of work. Those are right. taxes not paid. Those are projects not done, not begun, projects, you know, not drilled. I mean, it's down through the economy. I just heard from uh, someone in Oklahoma, and it's just crushing them up there, too. So it's not the only thing in the Texas or Oklahoma economy, but it is a major thing. And uh, frankly, and even in the stock market news in recent days, um, uh, they say it's not good. Uh, Wall Street's finally figured out it's not good to have ultra-low energy prices. So somewhere there's a medium, you know, that's, that's good for consumers with reasonable energy prices and enough to support things like recycling to make it economic because you can't expect the waste managements of the world 
to bear millions of dollars in costs for that. I think uh, as a stockholder in waste management, I'll self-declare, um, I'm happy to see them doing more or less a break even on those and, and making the profit on on everything else, which is a narrow profit margin, as you understand, a lot of equipment, a lot of people. But uh, but to just lose your shirt on a, a sector of the industry for a long term, that it just can't happen. Somebody has to pay yeah. for it. Well, it's interesting. It's a surprising uh, negative effect of low oil prices. People always ask me, so why are low oil prices bad? Well, this recycling story is just one other unusual uh, victim uh, of that. Paul Nielsen, we're out of time. I appreciate you chatting with us about this, this topic today and kind of mixing the uh, the oil topic and the recycling topic. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Marita. And we'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. In our next segment, we'll be talking with Chris Doherty, who is the Vice President of the National Waste and Recycling Association. Please stay tuned. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. Learn strategies to protect you and your family in the age of Obamacare. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This week, as you know, I've been talking about those green status symbols that uh, actually end up hurting the poor due to increased costs. And one of the surprises for me, and in fact actually the concept that launched the entire idea for this week's column is was the idea of recycling and how low gasoline prices or low oil prices, excuse me, have actually hurt the recycling industry. And as I point out in my column, many many industries are willing to pay the higher price for recycled energy due to kind of that sustainable goals, the status symbol of having that recycled logo. I was first alerted to this idea from a newspaper article that someone passed on to me from a little newspaper in Montana called the Phillipsburg Mail. And the headline says, Oil Prices Impact Recycling. The opening of the article says, Low oil prices are being blamed for the removal of plastics as a recyclable item in Granite County because nobody will pick it up 
and we're not alone. The column quotes Chris Doherty, Vice President of the National Waste and Recycling Association, and he's here with us today to join us on America's Voice for Energy. So, Chris, thanks for making yourself available to discuss this topic with us. Thanks for having me, Marita. So this is kind of a surprise. I mean, I, I write on energy issues every single week, follow this, and, of course, I'm aware that plastics, are made from petroleum products, as many people are not, but if, because of the work I do, I'm very aware of that. But I hadn't thought about how it impacts, how the low price of oil is making recycled plastics actually more expensive than, as they call it, virgin plastic. Can you address that? Sure. It's, it, the best place to start would be when the price of oil is high, then the demand for um, already manufactured plastic, your your spring water bottle and the like, um, is greater because it's a less expensive alternative than using virgin plastic to manufacture things like a plastic bottle. Uh, so your local recycler uh, collects uh, the recyclables, they sort them, um, and then they sell the plastic, and it might be sold to overseas markets where it gets converted into new products like fleece clothing or uh, uh, even here in the U.S., there's a company in Southern California that does nothing but recycle plastic bottles to make more plastic bottles. Uh, but when the price of oil has dropped and stayed as low as it has been for as long as it has been, um, then you're in a situation where the market for the recycled plastic, uh, the price is higher than for actually purchasing virgin plastic. Um, and there's a variety of factors that go into that as well. It's not just oil prices. It's the strong dollar, and it's also a weaker Chinese economy that have contributed to, uh, to this uh, extended depression of plastics pricing. So as I did my research for my column, I discovered that this little newspaper in Montana was not the only, you know, what they reported on was not the only location that was facing uh, difficulty with recycling. And um, as they point out, nobody will even come pick it up because it costs so much to come and get it. And other research right. I did showed that communities that, are, that are, have recycling programs are actually losing money now on their recycling programs. It's a trend we're seeing across the country. Um, sometimes it has to do with geography. For example, um, uh, in general terms, if you're on the West Coast, uh, it's easier to ship you know, commodities uh, across the Pacific to markets that are looking for those commodities. If you're in the middle of the country or perhaps on the East Coast, you know, it might not be as feasible. But the broader thing that's been happening is uh, recycling programs and contracts are often public-private partnerships between a local jurisdiction that wants the, the waste and the recycling collected in the case of recycling. Right, because it's, it, it's cheaper to send it to a, it's cheaper to recycle it from what I saw um, than to put it into a landfill, even, even with these costs. Well, right, and, and new products can be made. Here's a great example. Uh, an aluminum can, it takes 95% less energy to make an aluminum can out of an existing aluminum can than it does to make a new aluminum can. So it's not only the cost of the commodity, it's actually more energy efficient to recycle aluminum uh, because you're not mining the bauxite, you're not processing it into a metal that then gets manufactured. All of that's been done, all of that energy's been expended. You're just recycling the aluminum can. Uh, and, and that's the case of metals. So the, the broader set of commodities that impact recycling have been down. When recycling programs have uh, generally 
started, uh, commodities prices were much higher, and so both the uh, local government as well as the private company that that rolls out the trucks to collect and process the recycling um, could sell those materials on the back end uh, to offset the cost of collection and having a recycling program, and it was good for everybody. But with this extended uh, downward turn in commodities pricing, it, it's really challenged that financial model. Uh, so you've seen a lot of jurisdictions around the country uh, work with their private industry partners to uh, restructure those contracts as they come up for renewal to look at things like indexing against the commodities markets because you don't want either your local government or the company that's uh, paying to pick up the recycling uh, to have it be a losing proposition. Otherwise, it would eliminate recycling altogether. And we do need to remember that people want to recycle, and there is still a market for people to use sustainable commodities, in other words, recycled goods, uh, in the products that they manufacture. Uh, but these economic conditions are just really pressuring um, communities coast to coast on the issue. Let's look at those economic conditions a little bit more. Uh, some of the research I did, and obviously you are far more of an expert on, on this than I, I just looked some stuff up, uh, implied that, you know, in like when oil was, let's say, $100 a barrel, that they were getting, and I don't remember the figures, I don't have it in front of me, but you probably know it, um, thinking it was something like $16 a pound for recycle or for plastics, and mm -hmm. now they're getting pennies. What's the correct data there? Uh, it, on a scale, not to quote exact figures, but, you know, in a proportional scale, you're right. So that the depressed oil prices, if oil's not at $100 a barrel, oil's under $30 a barrel, there's a corresponding um, depression of the commodities like plastic that are, are petroleum-based, um, and you see that reflected in the pricing. And so if you're a manufacturer looking to use plastic, are you going to want to look at virgin plastic, which is less expensive? Um, you know, so that contributes to uh, the drying up of the market. But also um, a weaker Chinese economy means one of the larger consumers of these recycled goods to repurpose and remanufacture uh, is also not as economically strong as they were. And you combine that with the strength of the U.S. dollar, uh, it's really become a perfect storm around recycling in the commodities markets. And, and the commodities that we talk about for recycling uh, tend to uh, be subject to greater uh, price fluctuation than, than other commodities, say agricultural commodities, just to use an example. What are some of the most frequent products made out of recycled plastic? Because you mentioned there's a company in California that takes plastic bottles and recycles them into plastic right. bottles. But my research, again, I'm no, certainly not the expert mm -hmm. on this, but I found some of this interesting, said that the plastic degrades every time you recycle it so that what I read was that basically you can't take plastic bottles and turn them into plastic bottles. You can take plastic bottles and turn them into fleece blankets or, um, you know, um, like park benches sometimes that we see that are made out of recycled plastic. Right. You see, uh, in addition to the examples you gave, uh, you know, decking materials that are, you know, uh, all-weather decking materials as opposed to people mm -hmm. who are using pressure-treated lumber. Um, gosh, I have two kayaks that are made out of recycled plastic. That just I would hope from. you. I hope your kayaks are made out of recycled plastic. Now, that's, that's right. I'm curious about that. Is there a specific market for, I mean, are all kayaks made out of recycled plastic or some of them made out of, or, you know, like is there a company that specializes for people who want recycled that they only have recycled plastic? 
You know, those, those tend to be fairly niche businesses. We actually got contacted last week by a group of students that has put together a business plan to only sell recycled products, but they're buying those products from elsewhere. Uh, but part of their marketing approach is just to sell uh, recycled products only. It really, uh, you know, a wide range of products that you can look at um, are either made with recycled materials or not. And that speaks to some of the demand that people have for wanting recycled materials. Um, in the case of the plastic bottles you were talking about a second ago, the company in California actually, uh, you know, the, the plastic gets processed back down to uh, small gray little balls that almost look like BBs. And when mm -hmm. it's back in that form, it can be made into new bottles, can be made into uh, um, you know, strings of fabric that can be made into fleece or, or molded into you know, other types of packaging or containers. Um, so there's just a ton of applications out there. And, and people do want um, recycled content in a lot of the products that they use. So it's, you know, there's still some demand out there. But what people haven't understood is there's a cost to recycling. Um, and that's something that we've been out talking a lot about over the past year due to the commodity situation. Um, people want to recycle. They, they want to do good you know, for the planet, and they'd like to see products um, repurposed. Uh, so there's a cost, whether it's your local government. In some jurisdictions, your local government, whether it's the city or the county, uh, picks up uh, the trash. In other places, it's outsourced. And are, are, they, um, are they now adding a fee onto bills where perhaps there wasn't a fee before? Are we seeing that? Well, well, that's, that's where it's very unclear, so I'm glad you brought that up. So whether it's a, your local government collecting or the private industry who we represent collecting, there's a cost to those trucks rolling down the street to paying those employees who are picking up the bin and you know building and, and operating the facilities that separate your plastic from your aluminum, from your steel, and, and your paper products so that you know, these things can be packaged and repurposed. So there's always a cost to collection and processing, and that cost is, has oftentimes been offset by the sale of the commodities Sure. on the back end to make these programs, you know, economically viable. So um, what people don't understand, and it really depends on where you live, there's over 10,000 communities that do recycling. You may live in a county like I live in um, where I get a tax bill, and there's a line item for waste and recycling. But I pay my tax bill to the county, and the county is outsourced. Um, trash collection to private companies, and I see a line item on my bill that just covers, you know, waste and recycling. There are other jurisdictions where it's not listed as a line item at all on your bill. There are other jurisdictions where the consumer or the business pays the trash and recycling company directly, um, so it's not part of their taxes, but they, they pay for a collection service. So in many jurisdictions, customers don't know um, whether they're paying for waste and recycling pickup or not, or it might fall under a, a more broad category like you know waste collection uh, and recycling is part of that line item, but the consumer can't see that detail. So you know one of the things you know people need to understand though is recycling isn't free. Uh, there's definitely a cost to collecting it and processing it. Um, the Washington Post did a very detailed article last summer about this very challenge, and um, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but basically when commodity prices were high, the city was recovering uh, over a million dollars a year off the sale of the commodities, but with the current uh, markets the way they are, they were projecting something around a $300,000 loss this year, or last year, I should say, um, mm -hmm. from the sale of the commodities. So. A million dollars coming back in is cost recovery to help you do more recycling and, uh, you know, other programs that that supports as part of the, the waste ecosystem uh, is now gone and recycling is costing. So recycling is never free is, is the bottom line for consumers yeah. and businesses.
Well, fascinating conversation. We're out of time. It's, our 13 mm -hmm. minutes has gone by very quickly. Who would think talking about recycling would be so interesting? But it is. Thank you so much, Chris Doherty, Vice President of the National Waste and Recycling Association. People can find out more by just Googling that and finding your website. That's how I found you. So thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy, heard each week on AmericasWebRadio.com. Thanks for having us. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.